0: It's a delight to actually see everybody here. I was a little nervous about how things would turn out this morning, and God was merciful to let the storm be so mild in comparison to what was forecast. So just a delight to actually get to share this this day with you. And God must be working in your hearts if you would work to make yourself get here on time on a daylight-saving beginning day and with a storm like that, so... Praise God for Him being present among you. Let's pray. God, we are completely dependent upon Your mercy. We begged for Your mercy to allow us to be here this morning to worship so we could see Jesus, but we continue to need Your mercy. We are just as dependent now as we were last week, as we were the day we were born. We need Your Spirit to illuminate our eyes, to soften our hearts, be merciful to us, to give us sight, that we may see and understand Jesus. We may be delighted in Him above all things and be obedient to His call on our life. Amen. I think everyone knows the rules of making wishes if you happen to come across a magic lamp with a genie inside. You get three wishes if you find a magic lamp. And there's a few rules that go along with that. You can't wish for someone to be dead. You can't wish for someone to fall in love with you. And you can't wish for more wishes. Or so goes the popular movie. But this fun story didn't actually come up out of nowhere this uh, It was an attempt of ancient people thousands of years ago to try to understand the relationship between the spiritual world and the physical world. And they thought if they could influence that spiritual world a little bit, being so much more powerful, maybe they could get some of those spiritual beings on their side and gain for themselves a little advantage in this life. And with an opportunity like that, the only thing limiting your prosperity is your own imagination, so, I appeal to your imaginations now. If you found a magic genie land, what would you wish for with your three wishes? Would you wish for prosperity, financial stability, or maybe healing for somebody in your life that you love? Maybe you would wish for that new job, or maybe a husband, or a wife, or children, or more obedient children. Questions like this aren't completely crazy, though, and unhelpful. We use questions like this in counseling sometimes. I was given training in my counseling for this thing called the miracle question. When I'm sitting with someone and I want to understand what their goals are in life and what are the obstacles preventing them from get there, I'll say... Imagine that you went to bed tonight, and while you were sleeping, a miracle happened where everything you asked for suddenly came to came true. You woke up in the morning. What would it look like? What would you be doing in that life? This helps understand what they should be doing now to achieve that. But these are kind of silly questions, because we modern Americans know that you're not really going to find a magic genie lamp. And... Nobody is going to suddenly transform your life in such a way that when you wake up in the morning, everything is completely different. Yet, we're going to see in our text today that the opportunity for our heart's desires to be completely satisfied are offered to us in Christ. He is more powerful than any magic genie. With just a word, he can change your life dramatically. He has power and riches beyond your imagination. And he has come to earth offering them to people who want to join his kingdom. And so twice in our text today, Jesus asks people, what do you want? What would you answer Jesus if he stood right before you and you knew that he had this power and all these riches, he could change your life in an instant. What would you ask him for? And the way you answer this question reveals how you see yourself before King Jesus. Since the beginning of chapter 18, we've kind of been on this theme of humility. It's on every page of Matthew's story. He's, Jesus is repeatedly suggesting, speaking of His disciples, that ignorant, vulnerable little children who are in constant need of care, or we are unskilled laborers who really are just given mercy that we would even have a job to do, and then we're given payment beyond whatever value we add to the harvest. Or we're pictured as servants who have an unpayable debt, impossible to pay back. We have nothing to offer Jesus in His kingdom, and yet He comes to us, makes us His own, and He's delighted to call us His beloved people. And now we arrive at another section in the story, where this same emphasis is repeating itself. Again, the disciples are trying to get for themselves even more glory. It seems like they're not even paying attention. Are they even listening to what Jesus has been saying? So Jesus addresses this same concern another time, but this time, instead of a parable, he asks a question. This question will be the focus of our main idea today. What do you want from Jesus? What do you want from Jesus? Asking questions is a great way to expose what it is your heart treasures. So why do you fight through cold and snow and daylight savings changes to come to church? What is your prayer life like? How do you talk to other people in the world about Jesus? These are all ways that we are asking the same question, What do you want from Jesus? And how you answer it may determine the state of your soul. So this question shows up twice in our text today and that will guide our outline. First in verses 20 to 28, Jesus asks the disciples what they want in order to reveal that they are seeking glory for themselves. And Jesus reminds them that the way to glory is through humility. And then in verses 29 to 34, Jesus asks the same question Giving an example of this humility, he asks the same question to two blind men who are just seeking mercy. They know they have nothing to offer, and they only desire to see Jesus. So let's turn back to the text, to verse 20, and again see how the disciples are seeking glory. I'll just read through the uh, through verse 23. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, But we are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. So again, we see a request for a privileged position in Jesus' kingdom when He ascends to His throne. We've seen this before already when the disciples were asking, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They wanted to know how do you get to be the greatest in the kingdom? Because I want that spot. And then we saw it again a little later when they were enamored with this rich young ruler thinking, wow, we need to align with him because he's going to get us more influence. They're obsessed with greatness. But this time the question comes from their mother, from Salome. She's the mother of James and John. And it, it might be that she's even the sister of Mary, Jesus' mother. So she seems to be using her connection to Mary, her relationship. She's Jesus' aunt to say, hey, get my sons here a little advantage in the kingdom, you know, because we're family and all. This is just a silly request. Quite shocking, actually, considering that just in the previous verses, in 17 and 19, Jesus predicted his death again. He's done this multiple times already. seems the closer and closer he gets to the city of Jerusalem, the capital city, the more clear and gruesome his predictions about his death become. But also, the closer they get to Jerusalem, the more it appears that the disciples are blinded by potential glory. They're so eager to find this great position of power that it causes them to ignore everything Jesus has been teaching them about humility and service and suffering and even death. But Salome makes this request. Maybe she's just looking out for what's best for her sons. So when Jesus asks for what she wants, she asks for the best. Why wouldn't you? She asks for James and John to be in the two most powerful positions next to the king. One at his right hand and one at his left. But when we look closer at the text, we find it's not just a request from a caring mother. Jesus responds in verse 22 to both mom and her boys. The you there is a plural you. You all, y'all, as our southern friends would say, or you guys, as we tend to say. You guys don't know what you're asking, Jesus says to them. So it seems the boys have put their mother up to it. They're still angling for an advantage in the kingdom over the other disciples. Perhaps they saw back in chapter 16, Peter getting handed the keys to the kingdom. They thought, wait, why aren't we getting that? And then on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter seems to have a special voice before Jesus. But in both of those instances, Peter did slip up a bit with his words and got some strong rebukes. So James and John think, now is our opportunity. We might be able to get ahead of Peter. Jesus rebukes them, reminding them of how the kingdom grows in this world, not through forcing yourself, exalting yourself, but by humbling yourself. And so to bring this point out, he asks another question. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? He's not referring to drinking from an actual cup with some water or some juice in it. The cup is a metaphor often used in the Old Testament for someone's destiny. This is the cup, the destiny that I have prepared for you. So sometimes it refers to a blessing. Psalm 23, verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. You've given me so many blessings that they overflow. Or it's a cup of salvation as in Psalm 116. I will lift the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. It's a parallelism. The way to enjoy the cup of salvation is to call on the name of the Lord. Cry out to Him for mercy. But most often the cup refers to suffering. God's wrath. Jeremiah 25, God says, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. This is the heavy emphasis, the heavy theme of the Old Testament of this cup of wrath. This is what Jesus is picking up on. He just predicted in verses 17 and 19, terrible suffering for himself when he arrives in Jerusalem. He's going to be arrested condemned, mocked, beaten, and then crucified. He is going to drink the cup of suffering, the cup of God's wrath. This is why Jesus was sent. This is the calling of the great high king. If you are going to follow Jesus, he promises you will drink the cup of suffering before you ever get to drink the cup of blessing. And so Jesus asks his disciples, are you ready for that? Are you able to drink that cup? It's really a rhetorical question meant to point out that no, you're not able. You have no idea what you're asking. But they respond, we're able. Can't be that bad, right? This might be the most naive statement in the entire Bible. They're so blinded by their desire for glory, they don't have a clue what they just agreed to. This ranks right up there with the ignorance of the Israelites. Standing at the foot of Mount Sinai, Moses comes down from the mountain, explains the 613 commandments that God expects them to keep if they want to be His people. They were really meant to say, you can't do it. You are completely unable to be holy before God. But they they yell out, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We got this. And in their ignorance, they signed up for more suffering and more heartache than they ever imagined. This is what Jesus wants His disciples to realize. To be His disciple is to follow in His suffering on His path to glory. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Him. You don't get to come to Jesus looking for your own glory, looking for Him to pat you on the back and affirm how wonderful you are. You come ready to give it all up, recognizing you have nothing of value to Him. You're unable to follow Him as you ought. You cry out, all that the Lord has spoken, I am unable to do. Help me. Have mercy on me. suffering will be the path to help us recognize that desperate need suffering is the plan for his disciples he promises James and John you will drink my cup James drank his cup of suffering when he was killed for his faith in Acts 12 verse 2 John said in Revelation 1 9 that because of his testimony for Christ he was exiled to the prison island of Patmos. They got what Jesus promised. They received the cup of suffering, but the cup of blessing was not His to give, He said in verse 23. Remember a few months ago, our sermon from Philippians chapter 2. We are called to humble ourselves and serve one another because that's what Jesus did. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, held on to. But he emptied himself. He humbled himself, became an obedient slave to the point of death. And yet, the Father highly exalted him. You will not find glory. You will not experience blessing by exalting yourself, but humbling yourself and recognizing you don't deserve it. But the disciples still don't understand. This lesson is just not sinking in for them. Verse 24 says the other ten disciples are now angry, indignant with James and John. Trying to use their mom to weasel their way to an advantage. Are you kidding me? You guys are being so mean to us. But it's not really that they're so much more holy that they wouldn't have dared do such a thing. They're just mad that these two figured out a way to get ahead. They're upset that they were getting left behind. They wanted the glory too. So Jesus puts an end to this fighting by reminding them this radical difference between the kingdom of God and every single kingdom on earth. He says in verse 25, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. He's telling them, guys, look at all of human history. Every nation, every king has been a battle to find out who's the most important, who gets the most influence. Look at more recent history, all of these Caesars fighting about who gets to be in charge, fighting with the Senate. Or even more locally, Herod, King Herod, remember at the beginning of Matthew, King Herod killed his wives and own sons in order to hold on to his position of authority. Rulers will promise all kinds of prosperity for the masses. Free health care. Free college tuition. But then once they get in their positions, they just use all that power for themselves. This isn't just a first century phenomenon. This pattern has been going on ever since, even to this day. We see it everywhere. This battle for self-exaltation. You see it in your workplace, in your communities, in our national politics, even in your own home, especially if you're married. Or, yes, sadly, even in the church. People trying to prove themselves. Brothers and sisters trying to one-up each other. We want to display how important we are so we get the blessings that we think we deserve. It shouldn't be this way. That is not how the kingdom of heaven works. So Jesus says, It shall not be so among you. The kingdom of heaven will be radically different. It comes through serving, humbling yourself, submitting yourself, placing yourself beneath others. So much so that you are considered their slave. The church, you, this gathering, not just now but throughout the week, we are the place, the people where this counter-cultural kingdom is put on display in the world. We must be servants of one another. We display the Spirit at work in us by submitting ourselves to each other. Submission to one another is the way that we prove. It's a key indicator of God's presence in us. So in modern terminology, we might call this church membership. But Jesus uses different words. He says, commit to one another, to serving and submitting to one another. The church must never be known For making sure that others out there know how smart we are, how important we are, that we are strong, independent people. We're not people who just move on to the next thing when we don't get what we want, or if we have a disagreement, we go find somewhere else that we can agree, as though we are the independent arbiters of truth. We must be a people who always ask, how can I help? Where am I needed? Is there any way I can be of service? It's so striking that Jesus says this is how His kingdom is going to grow to fill the entire earth. How can a kingdom grow when people are constantly offering themselves up to be trampled on? Is He telling us that we ought to lay down our lives and be doormats for one another? Just offer ourselves up to be taken advantage of? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. This is the way of the kingdom. Every other kingdom in the world works the other way. This kingdom will work by God's power. And it will be founded on Christ Himself. Verse 28, even the Son of Man, the King Himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Our call is to be a kingdom of servants. And the foundation of it all is Jesus Christ Himself Who came to give his life as a ransom to create many more servants just like him. He laid down his life to establish a new kind of kingdom. As the most powerful, rich, wise king to ever live, he had every right and every ability to show up and conquer, wipe everyone out, and put himself on the throne. He could have done it that way and left us all in the dust. But instead, he emptied himself and he became obedient, a slave to the point of death on a cross. The only righteous person who ever lived gave himself up so that unrighteous people like us who put our faith in him can stand before God. That is our only hope to drink the cup of blessing. That's the only hope that we will have to ever experience glory. We might think it's just foolish to submit to others. But it's the highest form of imitating our great and mighty king. We might think it's weakness to surrender our lives. But somehow, this band of servants that Jesus trained up, in just a few generations, became the biggest, most diverse movement on the planet, completely upturned the most powerful Roman Empire. Our witness to the world is not how eloquently we speak of Jesus. The world will not know we are His by our nice conservative lifestyle. They'll not ask about the hope that lies within us because of our intellectual skill or our inspirational Facebook posts or our political involvement. This is the way of the world and it shall not be so among us. We must be a kingdom of servants who are desperately, utterly dependent upon Christ for every single breath and thankful to Him for every blessing as we surrender our lives to Him and to one another. But the disciples still weren't getting it. They didn't understand what that meant. So Jesus had to move them along to a certain place where He could show them, literally show them, people who did understand that. Show them what it looks like to humble yourself. Ironically, there was two blind men who could see this more clearly. They are men who were simply seeking mercy. So turn back to verse 29. We'll read to the end. As they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on a son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on a son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, Touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. This is Jesus' last move before he heads up the mountain to Jerusalem. Jericho is right at the foot of the mountain and they're going to head right up to Jerusalem with this growing crowd filled with excitement. The king is coming. He's beginning his triumphant ascent to his throne. People are so hungry for a new rule a righteous rule that brings peace and prosperity. As they march up their way to the capital city to usher their king to his home, these two poor blind beggars cry out and interrupt their shouts. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd attempts to silence them. We don't have time for this. We've got important kingdom work to do. These guys are just minor road bumps, speed bumps on the road to glory. But they just cry out more, Lord, have mercy on the Son of David. These blind men finally have hope. They've waited their whole lives. They've heard for hundreds of years that there's going to be a King, a Messiah who returns to make all things right. And it looks like He's finally come. They hear the rumors. And they use this cry of the Old Testament for salvation from God. Lord, have mercy. They remember the promise of the coming king, the son of David, who will reign forever. And he's finally here. It sounds like he's finally here, but he's passing us by. If only we could see him. So they muster every ounce of strength to let out a weak, breathy cry, Lord, have mercy. And the roar of the crowd is not enough to drown out that weak, fragile cry of these broken men. The ears of the suffering servant are in tune to the suffering of those who are ordained by the Father. The ears of the suffering servant are in tune to your suffering if you are ordained by the Father. Jesus stops and asks these men the same question he asked the disciples. What do you want me to do for you? The king, the glorious heavenly king on his way to the throne stops and bends down to these men On the ground, on the dusty road, and he has pity on them. He asks them what they want. And they admit they have nothing. That's what the cry of mercy is. I don't have anything to offer you to convince you to help me. In fact, I probably have sin, rebellion against your rule. I deserve judgment. I don't even deserve to have the Messiah walk by my spot of begging but here you are asking me what you can do for me. And so they ask Jesus if He would let them see. They just want to see the Messiah's face. And Jesus has pity on them, compassion, that that heart-wrenching emotion that says, I have to help these guys. And so stopping to heal them, He shows His disciples, this is what I'm talking about. He bows down to them, and He serves them. He heals them. He says, be a kingdom of servants just like this. Instead of going to the so-called great ones, spend time with the little ones. Now, He touches their eyes and they can see. Not just look around and enjoy colors and shapes again, but they can see their King standing gloriously right in front of them. They can see Thousands of people all around adoring Him, praising Him, shouting how marvelous His kingdom is. And yet they can see that His face, His smile is aimed right at them. And they are satisfied. They don't want glory for themselves. They are simply pleased to be in the presence of the glorious one. This is what we are called to when we come to Jesus. How many times does Jesus need to remind us of how insignificant we are? How little influence we have in the world? We are just children. We are unskilled laborers. We are indebted servants. We are blind beggars. And we should sure think rather highly of ourselves. We hear all these warnings, and yet we're so stuck on finding our own path to glory that we can't receive these truths. Oftentimes it takes a significant setback, perhaps blindness. Maybe the beginning of daylight savings is enough to make us realize how fragile we are. But when you finally get to that place of recognizing your brokenness, your utter need for God, Then you're ready to answer the question appropriately. What do you want from Jesus? The right answer is mercy. Lord, have mercy. We are blind. We don't deserve to see God, but help us see your glorious face. Help us see that you are the only one worthy of our affection. Help us see that You are the only hope for blessing. Help us see that the power to overcome my sin comes from Jesus. Why did you come to Christ? Or why should you come to Christ? Simply to escape punishment in hell? Maybe it's what your parents have always expected of you. Or maybe you thought your life would improve When you ask Jesus to save you, you may not be realizing what you're asking Him to do for you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, When Christ calls a man, He bids him come and die. Salvation is a free gift from Jesus that will cost you your life. When you sign up for life in His kingdom, you're not coming for a place at His right hand or His left. Keep reading the book of Matthew. You'll find the next time... People are exalted, lifted high at his right and his left hand as when he's hanging on a cross between two condemned criminals. The call to Christ is a call to give up your life. Find a new life, a longer, more satisfying life in service to others, just as he did. It's an all-encompassing call on your life. You don't just add Jesus to your dreams, your pursuits, your busy schedule. Salvation isn't just about finding, getting into heaven someday in the future when you die. It's about being made to live for heaven right now, today. It's overcoming your sin this day. It's molding your life around Christ's people in this moment. You can see how you answer this question of what you want from Jesus when you pray. What is your prayer life like? What do you ask for when you pray? Or do you even pray? Your prayer life reveals what you think of your salvation. If you came to Jesus to make your life better, then all of your prayers are going to be about improving your lot in life. But if you came to Jesus seeking mercy Your prayers will be filled with pleas for forgiveness, for the ability to see the world as He does, to be made useful for His kingdom, to be made obedient to His commands, to love the things that He loves. And the fruit of such prayers will bear out, will be revealed in your witness to the world. How do you talk about Jesus around other people? Do you talk about Jesus outside of this gathering? How you talk about Him or whether you talk about Him at all reveals how you answer this question, what do you want from Jesus? If you came to Him for a better life, then you might find it difficult to explain to others how Jesus makes your life better than the American dream. If you came to Him simply to get a ticket to heaven someday in the future, you'll have a hard time explaining how he's relevant right now, how he expects you to become a member of a church and how you need to follow all these spiritual disciplines. But if you came to him for mercy, recognizing you don't deserve anything, you are desperately dependent upon him for every moment. You submit yourself before others in service and they're going to ask you, Why? It's going to be easier than to share that humble dependence upon Christ. If you've asked Jesus, give me sight that I may see your glory and see your beauty, fill my heart with an understanding of who you are, then you will be compelled to talk about this most glorious thing you've ever seen. What do you want from Jesus? Think about that question deeply today. Go to Him in prayer and beg Him for mercy. Beg Him to show you how utterly dependent upon Him you are for His mercy. And then go. Tell the world of His lavish kindness towards you that He took your sin upon the cross and He purchased for you new life in His resurrection. Go and tell the world in service to others. Let's pray. Lord have mercy on us. We cannot accomplish any of this. We cannot even humble ourselves unless your spirit does it through us. God that can even be a scary thing. When we pray, humble us, God. Make us useful because you will. You will pour out a cup in our lives that will make us useful through suffering. So equip us. Strengthen us, God. Strengthen this body, not just us individually, but together as a family who will bear one another's burdens as the cup of suffering does come. And then send us out, Father. Make us useful to proclaim the glory of our risen Lord Jesus from here to the ends of the earth. Amen.